When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 36, With His Boots On. The next few days passed in what I can only describe as an alcoholic haze. I spent all my time propping up the bar of the long branch, except when old Wild West Billy came to turf me out so he could take his blank pot shots at me on stage, pretending to be Doc Holliday or Wild Bill Hickok. Memories of good old Fred churned around in my whisky-soaked brain. I remembered how he'd taken a shine to Tilly, but just too late. How she'd deflected him by telling him we were married, and how he'd arranged, all unknowing, for us to share married quarters on tour for a few blissful weeks. I wondered if Tilly knew. She would be devastated. So would Stan. And what about the governor? I even found myself feeling sorry for that old swine. Losing a son. What a terrible, terrible thing. Chaplin, as ever, was uppermost in my thoughts too, and I just couldn't shake the notion that poor Freddy had merely suffered the fate that Charlie had intended for me. The one consolation, if consolation it was, was that I wasn't having my nose rubbed in Chaplin's success at every turn, as Dodge City seemed mercifully unaffected by the Chaplinoia or the Chaplinitis, whichever it was. Until, that is, Makepeace came to me on the Monday and said that a new act was arriving on the train from Topeka and would I go and meet them on his behalf, bring them over to the varieties. I think he was trying to get me out into the open air as much as anything to separate me from the whisky for an hour or two. I traipsed dutifully up to the railroad station, noticing only when I was startled by the horn of a delivery van that I was stumbling up the middle of the street. The bell was clanging to announce the arrival of the westbound locomotive, and as I lurched onto the platform, the passengers were already climbing down the little hinged set ladders and dodging the occasional spurt of steam. I looked up and down, trying to spot the vaudevillians, not usually the most difficult of tasks. As a breed, they were fond of drawing attention to themselves. I smirked to myself as I imagined a rival turn to the musical cow milkers helping their co-star down the little steps. That smirk froze on my face, though, when through a cloud of piston steam I saw an all-too-familiar figure. The derby, the cane, the big shoes, the trademark splay-footed waddle. I thought to myself that I'd just had too much of the sauce. If I'd had a bottle in my hand, I would have looked accusingly at it and then tossed it away. I blinked hard, once, twice, hoping the apparition would go away, but it did not. It kept coming, silhouetted tauntingly against the white steam. No, I wailed, not you. The figure stopped. No, it echoed. What the hell are you doing here? I, I, I spluttered, feeling like my moorings were coming loose and I was going to float away. Arthur, Arthur Dando, said a woman's voice, and I glanced over the tormenting figure's shoulder to see Wren Hurley carrying two carpet bags. Behind her, I then spotted Ted Banks toting a trunk. I looked back at the supposed tramp himself, and my blurred vision cleared like the steam from the train. It was Edgar Hurley, of course. Edgar blasted Hurley. What? was the only word I could manage. 
Arthur, what a lovely surprise, Wren said, dropping her bags and embracing me. Are you for the Dodge City varieties by any chance? I said, the full horror dawning. Why, yes. How do you... I am to bring you there. Without further pleasantries, I picked up Wren's bags and led the way. Edgar followed with Ted, just far enough behind that he would not have to engage in conversation. Wren, I hissed, why is the fool dressed up as Charlie Chaplin? Oh, he does that all the time now, for the publicity, you see. He thinks it brings more people into the theatre if they see him around town. <laughs> and God knows we've needed it some of the places we've been playing. Not going too well, Wren sighed. After the gala evening, when, well, you know what happened. We had bookings as the Keystone Trio, but once theatres realised we didn't have Stan, they all evaporated. Some of them got quite nasty, so we had to stop using the name. What are you now? We go by Hurley, Ted and Wren. Ah, how did I miss that? I laughed. I presumed it was because of the drinking, and in truth I hadn't really been paying that much attention to my surroundings for a good few days. When I saw the billing later, however, they were listed as Early, Todd and Rena, which explained things. Now you are going to behave, aren't you? Wren said. Don't tell me, I muttered. Tell him. There were no shows that evening, and I managed to avoid Ed Hurley and co, even though the three of them were comfortably installed in rooms at the Long Branch, just along the corridor from my own, by virtue of avoiding the theatre and avoiding the bar. My friend Al, the bartender, slipped me a bottle of sipping bourbon, and I nursed it on my own, sitting at my window, watching the night fall on the prairie, listening to the distant coyotes howling. At some point in the middle of the night, I was woken by a soft tapping on my bedroom door. I uncurled myself somewhat painfully from the snoozing position I'd found in the wooden rocking chair by my window and padded over to the door in my stockinged feet. Outside in the corridor, there was Wren Hurley. I should have known. She wore a long white nightdress and her luxuriant dark brown hair was loose and tumbling around her shoulders. I peered out at her, slowed by the bourbon, and she gave me a lascivious smile that I felt in my groin and my curling toes. Now... When I asked if you were going to behave, she said, placing a hand on my chest and pushing me back into the room. The argument, when it came, flared up quickly. We were in the saloon. I was at the bar with Wild West Billy and Makepeace. Hurley, Wren and Ted Banks were sitting at a table nearby. Wren and Ted had changed into their normal clothes, but Hurley was still sporting his chaplain get-up from the evening's performances. I was explaining to Billy and Makepeace exactly what my beef was with Hurley, the professional part of it, anyway. I used to play the Chester Conklin part, I said, and my friend Stan was chaplain. Tilly, the best girl in the world, was Mabel, and the policeman was my pal Fred. I got a lump in my throat then and reached for a drink. Never mind anything he tells you, it's all above board and legit, Hurley called out. What do you think you're doing, going around dressed as Charlie Chaplin the whole time, anyway? I snarled back. It's deranged. At least I have an act, Hurley spat back. What are you doing? Pretending to be shot by an aged gunslinger. Very dignified. You have an act because you stole it, I shouted, and my stool went flying as I leapt to my feet. You copyrighted work that did not belong to you. Work that we came up with, me and Stan, and Tilly, and poor Freddy, God rest his soul. That point is moot. Hurley said pompously. Moot! I yelled. What does that mean? Just having the nerve to pass that sketch off as your own is like trampling on his grave. All's fair in love and war, Hurley said. Oh, and this is war then, is it? Because it certainly isn't the other thing. 
Wren fluttered her eyelashes at me then, for goodness sake, and Hurley became enraged. "'What do you know of love or anything else?' he screamed, losing his temper completely. "'You're just an animal. You rut where you please and you argue with your fists.' "'Any time you like,' I said, squaring up to him. I didn't throw a punch, though, because Wild West Billy had hold of my arms from behind, and Makepeace was interposing himself between myself and Hurley. "'That's enough now, boys. Now come on,' Makepeace was saying, and Wren, too, was trying to calm her husband down. "'What you fellas should do in a case like this,' Wild West Billy said, "'is settle it like men.' "'What?' I said. "'What do you mean?' "'Settle it Dodge-style, out there on Front Street, crack dawn.' "'What?' I said again. "'With guns? Really?' "'Hey,' Makepeace called out. "'That's not a bad idea, you know.' "'See?' Wild West Billy said, aiming a spit at the spittoon. "'We stage a gunfight. In the street there. "'I'll get the man from the Daily Globe to come out with a photographer. "'We put on a bit of a show for the folks, "'and it'll be a great bit of publicity for the varieties.' "'Long Branch Saloon in the background of the pictures,' Al the bartender sang out. "'Of course. Why not?' Makepeace said, his eyes bright with enthusiasm for the notion." "'I don't know,' I said, and I think principally because I didn't seem keen. Ed was suddenly like mustard. "'I'm up for it, sure,' he said. "'Let's settle our differences, Dodge-style.' I'm not altogether sure how word got out all over town, but as the sun rose at the far end of Front Street, there were dozens of locals already lining the sidewalks either side of the broad thoroughfare. Any automobiles had been trundled out of sight so as not to ruin the pictures, and I fancy the proud owners were probably worried about them getting dinged. Precious little chance of that, of course, unless someone had taken it upon themselves to plant the little explosive charges we used at the varieties to make it look like old Wild West Billy was using real live rounds. A thought occurred to me then, as the old codger buckled a gun belt round my waist. Hey, Billy, I said, these are just the guns from the act, right? Yeah, sure, he drawled. Sure, that's right. Then he slapped a black Stetson onto my head, the one I wore every time I lost a quick-draw contest to him in the act. Oh, I said, I see. I'm the bad guy. You've got the bad guy's hat, Billy said laconically. And the bad guy always loses. Well, let's see. Eh? Let's see how it plays out, Billy said enigmatically, spitting into the spittoon. Spitang! The old cowboy then waddled a few bow-legged steps over to where Chaplin, I mean Hurley, was rehearsing a bit of business in which the gun was preternaturally heavy and he couldn't get it into the holster on his belt, even using both hands. Billy offered my opponent a white Stetson, but Hurley waved it away impatiently, indicating the trademark Derby on his head. Wild West Billy sauntered back and said out of the side of his mouth, "'I knew some boys back in the day who'd shoot a plug hat like that clean off your head soon as you stepped out in the door.' It occurred to me then that I'd forgotten the blood bag, but I wasn't going to go back for it, and in any case, I didn't want to give Hurley the satisfaction. Makepeace bustled over, excited by the turnout, and rubbing his hands together at the thought of the boost in houses this could mean for the rest of the week. All right, fellas, he said. Showtime! Wild West Billy led the two of us out into the middle of the street, and there was a buzz of anticipation from both sides of the street. Hurley kept veering off to one side as though forced to by the weight of his heavy gun. Then he'd lift it up and swap sides to get himself back on course. He got a few laughs, and in fairness he wasn't bad. He was certainly better at Chaplin than he had been the last time I saw him. Billy took a silver dollar from his waistcoat pocket and said to me, "'Call it.' "'Heads,' I said. "'Bad call,' the old cowboy said, and nodded to the west end of the street." while Hurley waddled his chaplain walk away to the east. When I judged I'd gone far enough, I turned and saw what the disadvantage was. 
I was staring straight into the morning sun. A little way off, I could see the shadow silhouette of Charlie Chaplin clowning around, trying to work the crowd. He teetered this way and that, put the gun on the ground and did a few practice draws with his finger, tried to lift the gun up to the same level but couldn't manage it, fell on his backside in the dirt, on and on and on it went. I stood there, squinting into the bright autumn sun, obliged to stand and watch a man I heartily disliked indulge in an impersonation of my bitterest rival, a man who had done me down more times than I cared to think, and as if it wasn't bad enough having his gargantuan success rubbed in my face every way I turned, now I was having to watch an inferior copy of his antics at the crack of bloody dawn. I shaded my eyes, and there was Chaplin still cavorting madly and showing off, and I decided I'd had enough. After all, I was supposed to be the bad guy, so why was I waiting to play by the rules? Let's get on with it, and then I can go back to bed. I drew my gun and pointed it at him, at Hurley, at Chaplin, and he made a big deal of trying to lift his gun, then dropped it and put his fingers in his ears. The crowd laughed. I pulled the trigger, and the report echoed and cracked off the shop fronts. Hurley fell to his knees and clutched his chest with both hands. That's right, I thought. Make a big number out of it. Just pick up the gun and shoot back so I can go down and everyone can go home. There was a moment when Hurley seemed to be trying to reach for the gun on the floor. But then he pitched face forward into the dirt and lay still. Chapter 37. On the Run There was even a little ripple of applause, if you can believe it. Of course, everyone expected Hurley to get up. Well, they expected Charlie to get up, because he was indestructible, wasn't he? And he was the little guy, their hero. They were all on his side. I wasn't supposed to win. I was just some wrongman in a black hat. And then he didn't get up for a minute, a minute and a half, and it was too long for it to be a joke. And Wren ran over to him and rolled him over onto his back. I walked up to them, hardly believing, scarcely able to fathom. Oh, my God! Run for it, Arthur, Wren said, her face ashen. I looked down at Ed. His eyes were open, and there was a trickle of blood out of the side of his mouth, and a patch spreading on his shirt. That was a nice touch, I thought, crazily, in that bewildering moment. Slip some of the fake blood in my mouth. I'd have to pinch that idea. Then I saw it, just to the side of the button on his jacket, and my heart turned to ice. A hole that shouldn't be there. I looked down at the gun in my hand, and then up at Wild West Billy, who had sauntered over in his slow, bow-legged way. I grabbed him by the front of his waistcoat and pulled him up onto his tiptoes. There were bullets in the gun, I snarled, still not quite believing it. Real live bullets, you lunatic! I just wanted to see a real gunfight, that's all. What are you talking about? Weren't you here back in the day, when there were boys taking pot shots at plug hats all day long? I never saw a one. What? Never saw a real-life, honest-to-goodness gunfight. Never saw one. Never saw two men put their lives on the line out here on the street in front of everyone. You never saw one? Never did. And that's why you put real bullets in the guns? That's why. I looked at him. You crazy old bastard, I said. You sad, mad, crazy old fool. Look what you did. Look what you did. Well, the old fellow said his breath reeking of old tobacco. Seems to me that you did more than I did. 
I galloped into the long branch and up the stairs to my room two at a time. I grabbed everything of mine and stuffed it into my carpet bag willy-nilly. Then I bolted back out of the door, where I bumped right into Wren coming the other way. "'Take me with you,' she said, fastening herself to the front of my coat. "'Are you mad?' I said. "'I just gunned down your husband in front of witnesses and the Dodge City Daily Globe. "'How's it going to look if I disappear over the horizon with his fresh widow in tow?' I shook her off and raced over to the window, trying to conceal myself behind the drapes while I checked the street below. A nosy, chattering crowd had gathered around the fallen form of Edgar Hurley. I could see the lanky figure of Ted Banks talking to a policeman, for all I knew giving him my name and description, and as I watched, he turned and pointed over at the long branch. "'Arthur, please!' Wren cried. "'Listen,' I said. "'I'm going to have to go on the run, and I can't do that with you.' Stay here. Well, not right here in my room. That's going to look terrible. And do what you can to tell them it was an accident. Even as I said it, I knew that it was going to be a tough sell. The history of animosity between myself and Hurley, my familiarity with the guns from my nightly shootouts with mad old Billy. It wasn't as if it was an even draw, which used to be a defence in the olden days. I just fired at him while he was cavorting round like Charlie Chaplin. No one was going to believe that I hadn't known there were bullets in the gun, and Hurley wasn't going to be around to tell anyone that he hadn't known about it either. A distant sound brought me to my senses all of a sudden. It was the bell at the railroad station. There must be a train there, right now. I grabbed my bag and looked out of the window again. A small mob had gathered behind Ted Banks and the policeman, and seemed to be urging them in the direction of the saloon. The policeman wasn't exactly Wyatt Earp. He seemed to lack the enthusiasm for tackling a desperado single-handed, so I had a minute or two. I skipped along the landing, leaving Wren crying on my bed. Go to your own room, woman, for pity's sake! And came to a window which opened out onto the back of the building. I clambered out onto a sloping roof and slid down to the ground in the backyard, then out into an alleyway and ran along behind all the buildings on the block between me and the station. If I was lucky, I could get there without being seen. I could see the train at the platform, hissing and steaming, and its driver gave a couple of yanks on the whistle to urge stragglers to get aboard pronto. If I dashed across the street, I could get up onto the tracks and reach the back of the train by the most direct route. I peeked out around the corner of the end building on the block, a bargain store that was not yet open for business, and away down the street I could see the policeman trying to persuade as many people as possible to go into the saloon with him, while the onlookers were clearly more keen that he should go in by himself. I darted across the wide street and cut through onto the tracks. I didn't think I'd been seen, and I raced along the sleepers towards the rear end of the train. Careful not to draw attention to myself, I stepped up onto the platform and then on into the rearmost carriage, finding myself a window seat from which I could peer anxiously back towards the long branch. To my horror, it seemed that the possibility that I might be on the train had occurred to the policeman, or at least if not to that slow-witted fellow, then to someone in the mob with him, and a crowd of a couple of dozen souls began to stride up Front Street towards the station in the wake of the unenthusiastic flatfoot. It seemed they must surely arrive in time to prevent the train's departure, and then I would not escape a search of the carriages. I began to wonder desperately about jumping down once my pursuers reached the station, and using the train to shield me from their sight as I made a run for it. Here they were, now, passing up behind the guard's van, as I had done moments before, and I stood to open the window so that I could climb out. But then, hallelujah! The carriages clanked and juddered together, and the train began to move off. Out of the opposite window I could see the cop and his impromptu posse trotting along the platform trying to shout to the engine driver to stop, but the train picked up its pace and slowly, slowly we were leaving them behind, until finally I was out of their grasp. I sat down again and closed the window as the draught was displeasing the couple opposite, and then let out almost as big a draught myself as I sighed heavily. I was away. 
No doubt someone would have the bright idea to wire ahead to the next station stop, but I felt sure I could find a way to leap clear before that juncture and take my chances on foot. I was on the run. Chapter 38. The Room. Summer of 1917. Somewhere in America. The man John patted the newspaper on the table between us, the copy of the Dodge City Daily Globe, with its screaming banner headline, Chaplin Slain. So, he said thoughtfully, you were saying that this was a tragic accident. It was, I said. That mad old fool put real bullets in the gun without telling us. It might just as well have been me that got plugged. And the whole situation grew out of your dispute with this man, Edgar Hurley. Yes, I admitted. Put simply, you accused him of stealing your act, the act you had developed with Stanley Jefferson, to wit, the nutty burglars. He did steal it. And he accused you of seducing his wife, Ethel Hurley, also known as Wren. Well, if you'd met her, you'd know who did the seducing. At any rate, he accused you of sleeping with his wife. Once, John frowned. More than once, surely, at the film studio in Chicago, and then once more when your paths crossed again at the saloon in Dodge City. Yes, but only once that Hurley knew about. Hmm. John said nothing for a long few moments, tapping his teeth with his pencil. His colleague sat half-slumped in his chair, just looking at me, waiting. It was not long before I could stand it no longer. "'What?' I said. "'What are you thinking?' "'I'm wondering,' John said, "'I'm wondering whether you can really be any use to us, "'or whether I should just hand you over to the authorities for trial.' "'What use can I be?' I said. "'Just tell me.' "'Well, answer me this. "'Would you say your antipathy for Mr. Charlie Chaplin "'was a major contributory factor in this tragedy?' "'Certainly it was,' I said. "'You blamed him for the death of your friend. "'I still do.' and for pretty much all the ill luck that has befallen you, the separation from your sweetheart and child. Yes, the failure of your career as a vaudeville artist. Well, not failure, exactly. I had some good times. And your subsequent slide into penury. All right, I said. No need to lay it on too thick. Then there's the collapse of your mental health, the drinking, the experiences you describe where you believed you were seeing Chaplin everywhere. I was seeing him everywhere. How about your inability to break into the moving picture industry? You put that down to him. Ah, he said, now that story is a little more complicated. John raised an eyebrow, and I felt a little surge of hope. There was still a chance, a chance I could wriggle out of their grasp and avoid being sent back to England and who knows what ghastly fate. I need to tell you what happened next. Next. <laughs> 